Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome back. It is BungaCast. We're recording this at uh, the end of the Dread Eater of 2021 and not where you are in the sunny uplands of 2022, um, which I hope is not 2022, like a repeat of 2020, but indeed is its own thing, post-pandemic, new land of freedom. Anyway, so this is a three articles uh, where we each bring a piece to discuss. And uh, this week's or this month's theme is, I guess, about the question of whether there's restoration going on or whether there's more breakdown. Um, that I guess is the is the overarching theme. And so we're gonna we've got three articles: one from the Wall Street Journal, one from the Financial Times, and one from the Guardian. Um, and I'm gonna start off first. Um, but first, I'm gonna say hello to George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. Hi, guys. Hi. So formal. Hi, Alex. So Kali, how are you? Very well. Very well. Hello. Um, how how are you doing? Um, I mean, no, I I think you raised the specter of 2022 being 2020 part two, but it'll be part three because I think there was definitely a similarity between 2020 and 2021. So we're we're <clears throat> living in eternal recurrence. Oh, we can't we can't break out of the 2020 mold. We need to get beyond it. Well, yeah, well, in fact, and that's very much to the point of what we're discussing. Um, so I'm going to start. I'm I'm going to do mine first. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Millennials are supercharging the housing market by Nicole Friedman. It came out on the 14th of December. And the basic idea here is that there's an inflating housing market in the US being driven by millennials entering the housing market. Of course, if you remember, um, there was all this discussion about how millennials don't want to own houses and that they'll be generation rent and so on. But now, in fact, that they are entering the housing market in a big way. Part of the reason for why they've been doing this, the Wall Street Journal speculates, is because of the pandemic, that people are being able to buy, for example, houses outside the kind of more expensive cities, because now they can telecommute, um, and as well as the effect of maybe stimulus checks being allowing people to to buy more um, or to be able to afford a mortgage. The other issue is that there's cheaper mortgages now than there were a decade ago. Well, at the same time as there being more competition for for houses, which is driving up prices as well. Um, So it's kind of a mixed picture. It's maybe more affordable in terms of financing, but uh, prices are rising very quickly because of the influx of of new demand. Um, What has previously stopped, of course, millennials famously being able to buy houses uh, has been, you know, especially in the US, but but not just, um, has been rising student debt as well as the kind of general effect of the global financial crisis, which impacted people's incomes. Um, But what's happening here isn't just a question of incomes, but about wealth, which is to say that, um, you know, if you look at what has been the case up till now, is that the the net wealth of millennials for older millennials is 11% lower than previous generations at this stage in their life cycle. Whereas for younger millennials, it's 50% lower. So that, that um, indicates quite a uh, kind of cohort age division within the millennial generation, which is something that we discussed in the Generation Series, OK Boonger. If you have to listen to that, uh, give it a listen. Um, it is or will shortly be out uh, public to everyone. Um, and that, uh, that division is something which is marked by the global financial crisis. Older millennials probably are, we're already entering the workforce. We're already in the workforce um, by the time the global financial crisis hit, whereas younger millennials were not. And you can see that um, in the impact on net wealth uh, for this generation. But um, I think what all of this shows 
Firstly, and I just want to make a couple of points on this before I bring in George and Phil, is that this idea of consumer preference, that is the millennials don't want to own stuff. They just want to rent. You know, they want to be more footloose, be able to travel rather than own stuff. It's bullshit. It was just marketing froth. And of course, these preferences are determined by much larger factors. For example, just people's uh, income levels, their wealth, the kind of general structuration of the economy. Um, And the other thing is that uh, there appears to be a split within the millennial block, and not just one uh, along age lines, as I was just discussing, but a a, a split amongst millennials uh, on wealth rather than income, which is to say some millennials are now starting to inherit from boomer parents or boomer parents helping their kids buy because they have enough equity in their own house that they can leverage that to help uh, their kids buy houses, whereas many millennials, of course, aren't. And so I I wonder whether what we're seeing, in fact, is... um, a stratification within millennials, which might be greater than the stratification in previous generations, because previous generations were all able to buy houses or not all, but you know, there was a much greater access to houses. And so there was a sort of equalizing effect throughout uh, over a whole generation, whereas millennials are more stratified because upper and middle-class millennials, and especially those who benefit from parents who have, who own houses outright um, are, have access to, to houses, whereas who gets really impacted by this idea that no one can afford houses anymore is the l- much larger lower end of, of the millennials. And there's various political yeah. uh, aspects of this we can discuss. So, but I'll let uh, Phil in first. Well, I just, so I wanted to say, I mean, it's a very, it's a really good piece, I think, just in terms of keeping the kind of the um, speculative inferences and commentary uh, to a minimum and focusing on the interviews with the relevant people and thinking, you know, kind of talking through um, the facts of what's happening in the analysis, because the speculative inferences and political generalizations need to be left to podcasters. So it's good to see like a newspaper <laughs> exactly. report, which actually does its job for a change. Staying, I think Staying in its lane. Exactly. I think this is actually, I mean, the other reason I think this is a good piece is because I think it's actually really important. If it is... Um, and, you know, if it is a picture, a snapshot of a wider movement that might be um, already happening throughout the Western world or um, on the brink of happening elsewhere, uh, then I think it means, you know, it's going, it signals a few things. I think that a lot of the um, left populism and radical politics of the last um, 10, 15 years has been driven by precisely the kind the fact that the millennials have been uh, economically squeezed and kept out of the um, you know kept out of uh, what they expected in terms of their education and in terms of their position in the life cycle compared to their parents and so if that is shifting and bearing in mind it's shifting even prior to um, the mass kind of the mass inheritance of, um, of of boomer wealth then I think that's a significant moment, not least because it also means that it's going to um, squeeze housing even further and make it even more difficult to get access to housing for um, people who are, you know, for poorer people. And I think it's also uh, an indication of um, that one, again, one long-term effect of the pro-lockdown, of the support for lockdown among um, certain you know the constituencies for lockdown in the western world has they've succeeded in extracting not only changes in their working lives in terms of working from home and telecommuting but also that's enabled them to alter um, where they live 
And so this is one of the effects of that, right? And I think that is also an important, that will be an important long-term shift in terms of the balance between um, uh, workers and managers, at least in white collar, in white collar professional work. And so I think that, you know, though it's difficult to kind of, um, it's difficult to infer too much, but I think this is probably a significant moment in um, how the sociology and politics of the millennials will turn from now on. Yeah, I think that's a good, that is a good, a good summary of why this is a, I think, an an important article. I, I, I'm not quite so sure that it escapes some of the, those kind of hoary old chestnuts of like, millennials supposedly didn't want to buy things that kind of that that there's still a quite a bit of work to be done to kind of like um for people who were previously pushing that line that millennials just wanted like avocados or candles and they weren't any good at the economy they needed some help to to, to sort their families but maybe they did until dying. until now maybe but, they did and this is and now they're it turns out they don't when they have the kind of the finances and the um they're in a better position to shift, you know, to sell up and to shift from urban centers, then they realize they don't want to rent anymore and they don't want just experiences, but they want um, personal, they want personal property, private property and material possessions. Yeah. I mean, the, the do rather than have like uh, idea, like if there is less to do for kind of millennials, um, then maybe they, they will junk their old ideas that the property is a burden and uh tantamount to slavery and, and, well, but, and but, but exactly and, I, but i think this exposes boxing. how much of that was just pure ideology and it feeds very much into yeah I agree. The, the, what 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 you know the world economic forum says of you'll own nothing and be happy of a transformation to a world which is entirely rentierist where people there is no mass affluence as you saw a, 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 after the second world war in uh, across western countries where there is mass ownership of you know the people actually own houses and cars and a shift towards an even greater inequality where everyone is uh where capital is increasingly rentierist and people are forced to rent and i think that this whole idea that hey this is what millennials prefer is obviously providing the ideological fundament for that sort of transformation yeah so no exactly i mean there's 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 a whole lot of different uh things that can be drawn out of this this idea that generation rent um it's kind of navara watches are now like looking at house prices because they're and reading the daily mail to see what various things will um will, well, will impact good, on their their property prices so yeah i mean there is, it might there be is good news for there. bunga if it's bad news for navara which is you know navara kind of is basically blairites locked out of the housing market um then it might be good news for bunga right um but i think that is a point though that you know this gen- supposed generation left might indeed be a passing fad um if it was mainly a middle class phenomenon in terms of the radicalization of the middle class, especially uh, downwardly mobile middle class. Then the fact that some a, a, a section of millennials who might have some inherited wealth or help uh, to buy a property and, and and get on the property ladder, if that kind of then changes their politics, then it shows on one level that a lot of that supposed shift leftwards is is rather hollow at least the shift leftwards on material questions there's definitely been a value shift in terms of you know kind of embrace of wokeness and so on but that's a little bit separate um just just, just, let me finish this point but just the 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 shift leftwards um i think the point is is that this is why the generational narrative has been so emphasized by so-called generation left that it's millennials versus boomers because they couldn't admit to themselves and in public that it's in fact about class and not about generations now of course that generational question is perhaps being exposed because 
to put it in in, in the crude terms, the the millennial, the the, the kind of lefty millennials have been bought off, right? And now they now they are now they're becoming they're becoming homeowners. And in fact, it's a class question. Yeah, I mean the the um, <clears throat> stat that you that you read out about um, <clears throat> younger uh, younger millennials' net worth being fifty percent what they would have expected from older like from older generations in America. I mean that is the material basis of a of a politics. That is a real that is a real thwarted material expectation, and that is yeah. something to definitely to politicize. I guess the the question is how that. What, what is the trajectory like i mean even if there is still that gap is that gap if that gap is decreasing that is a depoliticizing factor for that for that particular group um and i think that is what what you know what has what has been happening so i mean yeah i guess that's that's not a that's not kind of a guarantee of, of future uh, performance <laughs> to, to kind of you know use that that phrase from from the stock market which is one of the things the the article um says student loan forbearance of, uh, federal government stimulus checks and booming stock market. These are the core, the material causes that have allowed some millennials to, to purchase property. Um, but yeah, you, you don't know how you know you don't know how secure that that kind of uh, material trajectory is because there's still, I think this there is the the the, the one aspect of the general generational narrative which I think comes to the fore and again and again is that there is a because there's I mean, this would be my hypothesis because there's a relatively lower level of class consciousness. Some of the comparisons that people make are generational or, or more of the comparisons that people make are generational. So like there is a there is a real if there is a gap between uh, different generations, that is a, um, you know, that is a politicizing factor. Or that is something which certainly is is, um, you know, is something which which political movements can can tap into. But, but, but I mean, what's interesting, of course, here is that you know, rather than it be a generational question, it's actually that, as we explored in the series, you know, generations end up just being vehicles for broader social transformation. So if you have much, you know, strongly growing inequality after the global financial crisis, the millennials just come to represent that greater inequality because they're, they're passing through life at the time that that happens. So there's probably more, you know, there's probably less inequality between within the boomer cohort than within what we'll see with millennials, I suspect, um, which I think is, you know, again, it's it, it's not that generation, the generational question is somehow the motive force there. It's about capitalist economics, about class, and that just comes to be reflected in a, in in what the generational cohort passes through, but it doesn't mean it's millennials versus boomers. It's in fact, it's millennials. We'll see in the future is millennials versus millennials, right? I mean, in terms of um, questions of, of wealth and income inequality. The war of all against all. No, but I guess the, yeah. So just, just one thing or a couple of kind of basic points to make here is that the, you know, the article does, does allude to it. This, the context of extremely low rates of, of home building, um, and that's definitely the case in the UK as well. And it's like, yeah, I mean, oh, it's, it's going to supercharge the housing market. It's like, well, build some more homes. Like there is a there is a solution uh, to this, which isn't just like being worried about the increasing house prices and what millennials are going to going to do. Um, yeah. And I think this, the second one is the, um, the there's a clear like this group is is now a constituency which is more up for grabs politically and in the uk you do see pretty generous like um um subsidies for for first time home buyers from the from millennial class like low deposits like there isn't there is a definite 
desire to make this group into part of the property owning democracy and um and lead them to uh to to the to the new revamped conservative party and away from the um away from the the um shadow of corbynism or the the threat of that so yeah i mean i guess my point is basically just like this if, if it does re- represent material trajectory or reality then there's a you know there if the if this group is up for grabs who is who is going to uh, represent them in the post-left populism context. I guess just one final question I had about this is whether this keeps the asset capitalism show on the road. You know, insofar as like how if it's a small if it's a narrower sliver of millennials who become homeowner, homeowners than Gen X did and then Boomers did, then does politics need to pander as much to sustaining asset values in terms of homeownership as they did with with Boomers? I think that's an interesting kind of question to bear in mind. So this is by Gideon Rackman, who's the foreign affairs columnist, chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times, and it was published on the 20th of December um, 2021. So it is, and the title of the piece is A Tale of Two Elites in Washington and Beijing. Um, so Gideon Rackman, I mean, he's not uh, the stable of kind of op-ed columnists in the Financial Times isn't great with the... Um, uh, partial exception of Martin Wolf, um, and particularly since they've lost a couple en route over the last couple of years. But Gideon Rackman, you know, he kind of is a bellwether, I suppose, of um, of uh, mainstream liberal opinion on world affairs, and particularly because uh, part of his shtick is to digest the latest kind of foreign affairs article or the latest kind of um, you know Beltway style Chatham House report on whatever it is you know that might be happening, and in this case he is talking about um, what is gripping particularly America's political elite, which is to say that there is um, a sudden splurge of interest among American political scientists of the prospect of civil war in the states. And this is also kind of a theme which has been floating around in social media. Um, and it's in particular reference to um, an article published by um, a former uh, chair, a former kind of national securocrat who would publish these quadrennial defense reviews. And he's published something talking about civil war, as well as Barbara Walter from University of California is talking about uh, publishing a book called How Civil Wars Start. Um, I suppose the thing that's interesting about it is I think it's worth thinking about why the prospect of civil war in America two years from the next general election is now kind of reached that stage of um, public debate. Um, But I I mean, I don't buy it for a moment. Um, I don't I mean, the sense that I don't think it's a, a likely outcome. Um, and rather, I see it much more as a as an effort to, um, you know, that it needs to be kind of folded into the debate to un- be understood as part of the debate itself. So it's not just the warnings of civil war are a way of managing the political polarization that they're responding to by, um, I think, possibly, you know, preparing for a more authoritarian, more authoritarian response on the part of state power. And this, I think, was evident in, um, and has been evident for a while in the demands, say, that white nationalist terrorists um, be seen as just as much of a threat as Islamist and jihadi terrorists, essentially to extend the war on terror even further. Um, That has essentially been the kind of the left, the bulk of the the gravamen of the left criticism 
of the war on terror for a while now. And I think this discourse of um, is America on the brink of civil war is a way of perpetuating um, emergency politics, essentially. Um, and so I think that is the most interesting aspect of it. Um, and I'm sure it's something we'll be coming back to. Um, the fact, I mean, it's not to deny the reality of the degree of um, political kind of dysfunction of American, the core institutions of the American state, the lack of meaningful um, consensus on kind of fundamental questions. Um, at the same time, though, you know, you see all these polls which show that there is substantive consensus on all sorts of political um, questions, but that um, on identity-based questions, people polarize very sharply. Um, and the degree of suspicion and mutual recrimination is uh, significant. So. Um, it seems to me like it's rather than seeing it as a straight kind of academic read of the degree of um, polarization in American life, it has to be seen as part of an effort to justify and perpetuate um, emergency politics and that the, the elite, that leading elite commentators are thinking in terms of the dangers of civil war is itself um, dangerous and threatening, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd make, a, make a few points here. I, th I, I think I probably like there are some really important um, signs, not that a civil war is imminent, but that certain preconditions of a civil war situation in the US are fulfilled. And the, the major one of these is essentially that the um, elite sees its own lack of legitimacy and is fully prepared to turn against its own population. And that is, you know, it's not the only precondition for a civil war, obviously, but it is an important one. And I think it is, it is present like if you look at for example this you know a year ago 6th of january like capital building being stormed it's like this is um this is the level of or the ability for for the for american political class to respond in the way that it did shows that it must be completely um divorced from like understanding what people actually think like have no sense of perspective in terms of the threats that it faces and that kind of like the acceptance on the part of the elite of the breakdown of, of consensual modes of governance, like it could lead to could lead in a number of different um, directions. But I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I think these um, these kind of like people who are writing books will start and how and how to stop them, which is the, the subtitle of that book, that they're not like they don't have their own um, interest in inflating the, uh, the situation. Yeah, no, I mean, I, the fact that, as Phil said in, in, in introducing the piece, that the scholarly discussion and the discussion of, you know, um, bureaucrat intellectuals is so similar to a lot of what you see on social media um, leads you to wonder whether they're not afflicted by the same hysteria. But I think, yeah, the, the kind of specter of Bonapartism looms large here because it's interesting if you think of how... Sorry, what's, the, what's, what's that specter? The specter of Bonapartism. Um, in the sense that this, it, it, as Phil suggested, that this is would be laying the groundwork for some um, authoritarian move in light of you know some potential breakdown. Um, and I mean, it's interesting if you if you try to think of what that civil war would look like. If you even uh, even if you want to give a bit of credence to the idea um, that. It would that, you know, the Republican Republicans are twice as armed as Democrats are. So you think, well, there's only one winner there. But then, you know, a, a real civil war would need a split amongst the elite, not just kind of um, warring factions amongst some sections of the populace. Right. Um, and I, I don't know if that would actually happen, that there would actually be a split among the elite. Um, 
Yeah, one... you need, but I mean, you need so much more. And also, yeah, anyway, go on, Alex. No, yeah. And I, I think one one interesting thing about this, though, just in, in maybe in contrast to what you said, Phil, is that you said, ah, yeah, but there's a, a remarkable degree of consensus in American society over a lot of issues, but the split is more over identity. Now, I, I think that's true, but we should probably remember that most civil wars split along the lines of identity rather than necessarily politics. Um, and so that might be, that might be um, something to, something to bear in mind, but I don't think the conditions are there for an actual civil war. I think what, yeah, as I agree with Phil's interpretation, which is there might be growing kind of um, skirmishes and maybe even terrorist acts between one side and the other, which leads to an authoritarian takeover rather than an actual full-fledged civil war. No, but there's not going to be an authoritarian takeover. Um, uh, you know, there'll be kind of emerge. There'll be, you know, there's kind of there might be uh, the administrative state will gain kind of greater coercive powers. There might be certain kinds of war on terror style legislation. There'll be an atmosphere of um, a kind of perhaps a kind of a years of lead atmosphere, which will be yeah. enhanced. You know, um, not least by kind of claims like this, right? Um, and I mean, the other thing that's striking about the Gideon Rackman piece, of course, is that the not so tacit subtext is the polarization is all one sided, right? That it is, um, it's kind of uh, Trumpians who refuse to accept that Donald Trump lost. It is anti vax um, conspiracy theorists. It is, um, you know, vaccine skeptics. It is all of these um, xenophobes and bigots. It's all of these kind of problematic opinions. The idea that, so, um, you know, kind of the insanity of knobs is also responsible for political polarization on the other side isn't, yeah. doesn't factor in. And we'll have to wait to see what, you know, what the Barbara Walters book says. But if I I'd wager money on the fact that, um, you know, probably that Russiagate, for instance, doesn't factor into considering some of the ways in which political polarization has been propagated and conspiracy theories no, have it, been propagated at the core of public life. It would. It would. But from the other side, it's like, why are all these people so like uh, so gullible and like why are they so like willing to be, I don't know, to be convinced by all these external enemies? Um, I'm sure that would would feature in, in the model. But no, I think it's like it, it is no the extreme pessimism on the part of the elites in terms of like they cannot understand their fellow citizens so they have to like, that's a real material and political distance so they have to come up with like these reasons which are kind of outside of the normal realms of explanation to explain why they you know why does that polarization exist um and they've given up on the the project i think on the whole of convincing them um, that is, you know, the, these these rubes um, to, you know, to just like work out what's really going on. They've given up on that project of of persuading them to be part of that of America's inclusive ideal. And I think one of the um, the telltale lines is that the division could be peaceful, involving a much looser federation. So the idea is like, oh yeah, you could have secession. You could have why don't the blue states just like just form a you know a different country and the red states can form a you know, uh, kind of what what's left, and you know, one of those will be will be better than, than the other. The, the, the irony yeah. being that that it's is obvious. the red states who 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 fight for you know traditional states' rights, and and the blue states uh, for more yeah, uh, you know for more centralized control. Um, it's the <laughs> next it's the next civil war, states' rights. You want California's uh, ability to become an autonomous republic. 
It's, um, I mean, it's the other, I mean, the only other thing I'd say, about, I suppose, about the Gideon Reckon piece is um, the bad faith, I think, is also fairly evident, you know, like a civil war in the US would be, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, a real civil war would be obviously, I mean, you know, kind of a world historic uh, catastrophe. Right. But I mean, especially in the kinds of conditions and under which um, it's envisaged here. And he's quite cool about it. You know, like um, yeah. there isn't he doesn't really genuinely believe it. So that further kind of reinforces in my mind that what it's really doing is kind of teeing up um, a certain kind of emergency response and a justification for um, political opposition, you know, for crushing and curbing political dissent, essentially. That's the so, function of this debate rather than a meaningful um, discussion of the dysfunction of America's institutions or an attempt to overcome them. So, it's, I mean, it's an interesting article in that it says a tale of two elites in Washington and Beijing and says, well, American analysts worry about civil war. China's one stream of global ascendancy. But then it doesn't really talk about the Chinese elite at all. I mean, really, they, they're there to, to just show that the, you know, the, Ameri- the Anglo-American elites can lust after the kind of CCP control of the citizenry, you know, dissident journalists jailed. Oh, that's, you know, that's great. I mean, that's the cost of doing business. So it is, it is weird that you don't yeah. actually have any like sensibly this article is about two elites and one of them is basically like not discussed um at, at all and that is you know maybe that's you're, you're right phil it's like that's the model like that's what the american elites are really looking forward to like, and, and just imagine and it, if we could have locked everyone down and and uh you know had such a a, a coordinated and um authoritarian response to covid and various other political problems we'd be in a great situation no and, and it probably overstates the consensus within chinese society both in terms of the Chinese state being such a kind of linear monolithic entity when it's probably much more fragmented than that or lots more competing interests within the state, as well as um, labor unrest and other things. So it, it probably, it, you know, um, ho- hoisting China up as this foil for the U.S. as kind of China's all consensus and it's unified versus the U.S., which is falling apart, is also um, says more about the the writer than it does about probably Chinese realities as much as it uh, kind of overstates the the breakdown of the United States. Maybe yeah, in longer I mean, term, Alex... maybe in longer term perspective, you know, you say, oh well, it, when empires kind of decline, what happens? You know, that's worth exploring. Um, but I think that what this is talking about is probably a much shorter time frame, um, extrapolating from you know a lot of social media crap, basically. And uh, and, and yeah. saying that, that this is going to be civil war. But I don't like your criticism of, uh, of of the Chinese system. I don't think I think that's minus five hundred social credit points um, for that. Right. But um, should we should we move on to the uh, the, the, the third of three? So yeah, this is um, a piece from from the Guardian. Don't worry, we're not we're actually not one to dunk on one which um, shock horror may actually be be good. Um, so hold hold onto your hats. I mean, yeah. So the title is British politics suddenly feels small, and the old order is quote taking back control unquote. And it's by Julian Coman from the sixth of December, twenty twenty one. And the central argument here, which I think is you know, as Alex you said at the top top of the show. Um, very much relate to that. So the idea is that Brexit and Corbyn insurgencies are over in the British context and their kind of restoration politics has overtaken the Tories and, and Labour. So this idea is that the Tories are kind of rowing back on the levelling up so that 
distributing resources to outside of London, essentially, and Labour have kind of junked the um, the, the the kind of the, the Corbyn experiment and have gone back to this kind of um, such policies as an office for value for money. Um, these kind of like classically Blair that isn't a joke somehow as an illustration of this kind of re- return to this kind of um, friendly technocracy of the, of the kind of Blair. Um, era so yeah i think the the this the reason why i think this is interesting is that this idea that there was a, a period of a kind of a potential or failed um kind of challenge to the existing order and then some some power is being reasserted that's something or there's a restoration that's an important one to um to consider so in fact i mean this is the the argument that i made on um red star radio in october um was that Brexit indeed was uh, the sort of failed democratic revolution that you could expect um, under the conditions of, of 2016 of, of hollowed out democratic representative structures and no it's organized working class movement and that COVID um, has been a restoration of the power of the ruling class in, in, in the intervening uh, years. And I think, you know, that's not the perspective of this article. It doesn't really talk about uh, COVID, but certainly that idea that the any um, oppositional um, opportunity or, or like energy has been has been dissipated and we're now sort of back back to no I don't want to say back to the end of history but there is certainly a sense of some of those energies being really thoroughly managed away I mean that is something I think to take seriously so yeah I, I, mean, I, I thought this was a good article what did you guys think I thought it was a great article and, like you say, kind of remarkable for being published by um, a member of the Guardian editorial team, that it's so kind of uh, politically nuanced and is willing to concede the idea of Brexit. So this isn't kind of somebody the Guardian brought in, but is a member of the Guardian team, like I say, and is nonetheless willing to concede of Brexit as a kind of democratic insurrection, though only in the form, only in its kind of red wall form. Um I wouldn't, I mean, I don't agree with George on the kind of uh, claiming that this is kind of revolution and restoration um, with a kind of just a fit, with a qualifying footnote of um, the contemporary context. It seems to me there are more layers to it than that. But nonetheless, I mean, there is clearly kind of containment going on, I think. Um, and it's hard to read the politics of lockdown um, in a global context, except as an attempt to... Um, kind of uh, manage and diffuse growing public pressures that were building in the wake of uh, a decade-long kind of economic or the tail and the backwash of the economic crisis from 2008. And I think, you know, there's, uh, from a historical perspective, there's no way to see lockdown. You have to see lockdown through that, you know, kind of um, the COVID, uh, the challenge of containing kind of uh, a respiratory virus notwithstanding. Beyond that, I would say, I mean, it seems to me less restoration than desperation and emptiness. So the failure, you know, the fact that the um, that Labour Party has nowhere to turn once they've kind of um, ousted Corbyn, they have nowhere to turn except the 1990s. The Tories have won this um, significant majority, 80 seats, um, but that they don't, they still kind of are um, orienting around, they have nothing except to fall back onto accept ideas from the 1980s, you know, nearly going, you know, for nearly 40 years now. That seems to me to suggest weakness rather than restoration. It seems to me to suggest the bankruptcy and failure 
of any kind of meaningful political mediation or political representation. And it seems to be vindicated since, right? I mean, yeah. at the moment, while the British government is struggling to is struggling to um, kind of uh, is struggling to orient itself in response to the um, spread of the Omicron variant. One of the key things is trying to maintain its electoral mandate, um, its electoral coalition, and that the majority, apparently, if the newspaper reports are to believe, the majority of Tory MPs um, don't want to build their authority off the back of the northern and mid the red wall constituencies that put them into power. They Why want they? to. Well, um, if they want power, right? I mean, why would they as if they want a long-term project of power? And so they clearly don't because so they fall back, you know, the recently the Brexit minister, the chief negotiator over Brexit, Lord Frost, resigned because Singapore on Thames, the vision of this free trading Britain kind of um, unshackled from the Napoleonic European bloc has not been realized, right? But it's only to show how utterly... Um, devoid of meaningful political visions and institutional proposals they are so that they seems should, to me to be yeah. the lesson of um, they should have, and this piece is right it's insightful on yeah. that score they should have rebranded it rather than singapore on thames because that's a bit southern they should have played to new constituencies singapore on trent or something like that <laughs> could, have, could have been better yeah and that's, that a, would, that's that would, a river that's in the midlands missing. people um yes that's what's missing exactly sorry, that requires quite a sensitive knowledge of british uh, geographies and, and riverways to, to um so I, I i agree i mean that what's remarkable here is not so much some sort of restoration and a return to the end of history but how much weak sauce uh, each side here uh, has to sell. So, you know, the, the tour, the, 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 I mean, new labor was flimsy and merely just a marketing initiative more, you know, already at the time. And to then try to repeat new labor as all critics, you know, from kind of Corbynite critics to, to the right, whatever, to kind of recap that, to, to, to sort of take that, uh, to play that over once again, as labor is trying to do is incredibly weak. And the Tories one as well. I think I don't even buy very much what this article alleges that there's a kind of hardcore Thatcherite group within the Tories who are um, resistant to, to Johnson's kind of growing one nation Tory project. Um, it seems that there's definitely a kind of uh, rightist rebellion within the Tory party, but I'm not sure if I would classify it as Thatcherite. I mean, you know, they, I'm not sure that it will be kind of hardcore neoliberal as much as it will be um, more along the lines of what you see in various other countries of a kind of of a right radicalizing and becoming more populist as well so and, and just being you a don't bit... see there isn't really evidence of that in in british politics at the moment i mean there's you know there's populist there will be populist measures say over crime and immigration right but i mean it's not going yeah. to be going in the direction well they, they, they resisted they resisted they voted of... against the covid passports for example right yeah but um, that's so there's a little bit so there is and, and of, over um, brexit and over brexit they you know they they obviously were a thorn in the side of the conservative the conservative party leader, yeah so, so i mean there is a little so there is a little so the singapore on thames libertarian so the libertarian singapore on thames constituency of the tory party is what is making it difficult to partly what's making it difficult to roll out lockdown again, right, in response to the Omicron variant. And I think that, you know, that is, um, uh, that's fairly obvious. But I think, I mean, it's true to say that it's not a, um, 
that it's an in the reason I think that they default to the market is because it allows them to avoid political responsibility yeah. and political vision. No, I, it's they not, don't have it's, to offer anything up. It, Rather, they can just you know they privatize, low tax, let kind of um, let the market and entrepreneurs and the economy kind of spontaneously um, do its work. And so it's a way of avoiding political vision. Um, rather than um, offering political vision, which no, and is that, what and it's different, the Thatcherite and it, program was of exactly, originally. Exactly. That, that's what I mean, that it's not, that's why I don't think it's a kind of Thatcher, return to Thatcherite vision. So that's why I don't buy the what, what this article what this article alleges. And I think just more generally, as much as you know, both Labour and Tories and the, the political establishment as a whole would naturally try to contain the explosive potential of Brexit, which has already happened. Um, which is to say the containment has already happened. Uh, that doesn't mean that there can be a return to the end of history, I think. Um, that doesn't mean that there's going to be some great opening and possibility for you know, opening of a revolutionary horizon or something like that, but that the conditions, the material conditions for the end of history no longer exist. Um, and both in terms of continuing waning legitimacy of democratic regimes as well as the economic basis for that, uh, in terms of increasing financialization, the, the perhaps growing inflation, um, the risk of growing debt, all these other questions, which mean that, and, and fundamentally also the fact that um, work doesn't pay for a lot of people. And so there's no, there's no kind of going back in that regard, however much there might be at the kind of superficial political and kind of political messaging level, an attempt to return back to Thatcherism or to return back to new labor. That can't be a, that won't be a solid yeah. settlement. So that, so that, that's the point that I disagree with the article on. I think it just like the idea of like, is it like we're now back to Thatcher versus Blair? So that's that's the form of the restoration, <laughs> as if that no, was I a versus anyway. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay. very true. Um, yeah, but I just don't. I think that misses the point that there that there has been a sort of restoration that the insurgencies of Brexit and Corbyn are over. But that restoration, if you don't talk about COVID when you're talking about restoration, which this which this article doesn't, then I think you are missing the point that that is the like it's not in, it's not the entire political class but the vast majority um were were like got their heads spun around over over brexit and now they're kind of all facing the same way and any of those kind of um that effects if brexit was ever going to be a vehicle of of kind of constitutional crisis or change or whatever it certainly like those energies now have been have been um have been contained and that has been due to due to covid there was only six weeks uh or seven weeks between um <clears throat> between the uk leaving the eu and the first lockdown like it's like I, I mean you could say that's a coincidence but but i'm i'm not but quite so sure but the thing is covid will end at a certain point i mean no matter how much you think <laughs> no you'd, it, like, to, you'd it, like to think no no, so. no but that's no no but this is important because it will end now even if you buy into the idea that this is okay, the rollout when, the ro- when, hang on hang on hang on hang on hang like, on seriously even if you think this is a rollout of a technical a techno medical superstructure of total control and totalitarian takeover and whatever that still means that COVID will end, which is which is to say that these things are also driven in large part by media cycle. And if anything, 
you know, at the la- in the final analysis, boredom will win, which is to say people aren't going to buy into this permanently. In the same way that the war on terror, some people thought that the war on terror would continue on forever and that it would be um, that it would be this constant state of fear over Islamist terrorism. That's gone. And it, it's gone because the media got bored. People got bored. People weren't scared by it anymore. And that doesn't mean that there weren't there were serious transformations and restrictions and liberty, which have been long term consequences of the war on terror. But it'll happen with COVID as well. The disease itself will dissipate in some way or another. And the people's concern over this health risk itself will also dissipate. That doesn't mean that a lot of the anti-freedom measures that have been implemented won't remain, but it means that the kind of this specific emergency politics will also pass. Um, so why am I, hang on, why am I saying that? Yeah. I'm saying that is that what, what this talks about or what you're talking about as restoration is an attempt to contain the dissipatory and fragmentary and uh, you know kind of challenging aspects of the the end of the end of history, right? And it might have been temporarily successful, and it hasn't. And COVID has been very important in imposing that freeze, basically keeping people up, uh, uh, make it impossible, you know, preventing people from organizing, from collectively getting together. Um, but that won't last forever, I think. You know, and the fact is because people will. For one, in one way or another, whether this, the the media becomes bored of it or people start actively dissenting and stop following lockdown, as w- which I think we're already beginning to see, um, it means that it can't perpetuate itself forever. So that doesn't mean that there won't be new emergency politics to emerge, but this can't carry on forever. No, I, I see what you're saying. Like historically, emergencies <clears throat> are kind of introduced and then fall away once all of the benefits have been have been gained or at least. F- decrease in 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 prominence sooner or sooner or later um war on terror for, ex, for example but I, I guess the question is whether this is a qualitatively different situation i mean that basically means history doesn't apply which is never perhaps the kind of the, the strongest argument but like it does i mean if if you'd if you'd said in like march 2020 um like yeah covid's covid's gonna end and then when I think whatever date you could reasonably have have set for ending at that point in time, like would have been so much short, would have been way before now. So I guess my my sort of counter to to your to, to what you're saying, which I do think makes a lot of sense, is that there is there is certainly a a logic which is pretty um, which is way more transformatory of of social life and interpersonal relations than the war on terror um, ever ever could have been, or maybe then any previous emergency politics that I know of um, were. So I guess that's, that's just to say like this, this kind of restorationary logic, um, you know, it seems like it's got a really long time to, to play out because there's so much that can potentially be uh, reorganized um, through like through COVID uh, emergent, quote unquote emergency response measures. Oh, what? So there's not going to be any politics anymore ever again because of COVID. I mean, I don't think that, I, I don't think that's well, a, well, I mean, no, but it's, I mean, I, I just think it's not good to be so like, so like, oh yeah, it's going to end. It's fine. I, no, I think, no, I, I think, no, no, but like, my point is that it absolutely needs to be challenged and the emergency politics has to be forced to end and the measures rolled back, but that doesn't mean that we will remain in this permanent state. You know, the kind of cultural climate, political climate will remain this emergency COVID, everything COVID. Eventually they'll stop talking about COVID. Right. They're not that's not going to that won't have legs for 10 years. That, that just won't. OK, 10. So you're saying 10 years. That's no, the much less than that. Much years. less. No, much less than that, because it, it relies on event, effectively convincing people. 
whether whether by hook or by crook, right? People have been convinced that COVID matters. And that at a certain point, people are not going to buy it anymore. So th- that's what I mean, that it can't, that it won't perpetuate itself forever. I mean, I, I think it would be short-sighted to suddenly think that, oh, well, because they've had success in doing this now. And I, I don't underestimate the world historic nature of this pandemic um, and the responses to it. But I, you know, I, I just don't think that it, that, that elites will continue to rule through this emer- through this COVID emergency forever. Well, yeah, no, okay, I, I, I guess I, I, I possibly take that, but the the state of permanent emergency. Um, no, that yes, but we've already been in that for a long time. That's what I'm saying is not new. We've already been in emergency politics for a long time um, th- through the war on terror. So that you know, it, it, it's not like elites have had to have recourse to emergency repeatedly over the past decades. And so this is the this is the latest instance of it, and it's been an important instance, but this specific instance will also fall away. And some of the most extreme measures will also fall away while um, institutionalizing a new normal effectively of, of greater restrictions. Maybe, you know, COVID passports remain, but um, they're no longer referred to as COVID because, you know, the people forget about that COVID specific instance. Yeah, I mean, I guess time will time will tell proofs proofs in the pudding and all that but um i'm certainly it sounds <laughs> at least in this discussion way more way more skeptical i think that that like restoration has been you know it, it has been or will will be pretty complete i'm you know i guess i'm quite pessimistic oh then then that. you should pack it in mate pack it in you know it's all it's a world of total control now um there's nothing left to be done go enjoy so yourself you believe, go enjoy you yourself george See, where it should be the global politics podcast um, at the start of the restoration <laughs> for 2022. Yeah, but if that doesn't have a good, as good a ring. Um, Fair enough. It doesn't. This is your tribe. Yeah, I mean, you've got to balance like aesthetic uh, criteria against um, ones of, of veracity, I would say. All right. Um, well, that was a gloomy note to finish on. Uh, Welcome to 2022. I hope uh, where you are listening to this, which is in 2022, uh, rather than we are, which is where, which is 2021, things look a lot more sunny uh, than uh, than George has portrayed. Um, but that's it for now. We'll be back with a lot more stuff. Um, if we haven't announced it already, keep an eye out for a new announcement of what, about what we've got coming this year. I'm glad to have you with us. And uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.